Attend hut, Luke GJ Legion. Welcome to Bree Shooting by Luke GJ, where the breeze shall be shot. Boom, boom. With both barrels. In this episode of the podcast, I'll detail my two and a half month build up and my ride in the Etapta Tour. Alps 2019. Luke Etapta Tour. To me, a fight is not a fight until there's resistance. Something to overcome. Teddy Atlas. A band of 25 Orwellians descended and ascended on the Alps for Le Tap de Tour and a mini raid. I recount my adventure amidst the heat wave to discover if I am a tropical weather ginger. Chapter 1 The Mission After returning from Belgium, where I rode Liège Baston Liège, Ghent Vavagum, and the Philippe Gilbert Classic, I had two and a half months until my next quarry, Le Tap de Tour and a mini raid Alps. The Tap de Tour is what it says on the tin, it's a stage of the tour. Unlike the Marmotte and the Maratona, the Etapes route changes every year. It usually runs on the Queen stage of that year's tour, a week before the professionals race the stage. This year, it was stage 20 of the Tour de France. Entries and accommodation are hard to come by, so your best bet is to go with a tour company. We went with Sportif Breaks. They are an English company who have been growing since Phil founded it three Septembers ago. As there were 25 of us who attended, we utilized Bring My Bike to ship our bikes out ahead of us. This was a great service, as we did need to faff with the bikes upon arrival and then dismantle them before leaving. We didn't need to put a trailer on our bus to transport our bike bags, and our hotels weren't filled with bike bags taking up space. It was very simple. Just front wheel on, front wheel off, Danielson. After the etap, we planned to do a mini raid Alps, wherein we would ride some Alpine calls. Sportive brakes really assisted, assisted us in this regard. The first leg of the raid was a semi-assisted bikepacking trip 150 kilometers to Briançon. The final part of the trip would be a pilgrimage up to the Galibier, to watch the race, to watch the professionals race up. There were trials and tribulations, so, dear listener, let's open our tale in early May as I face down the barrel of my 30th birthday. Chapter 2 Is a handlebar bag and a flappy gilet? A replacement for a personality? Finally, after years of searching and sliding into Gus Morton's and Lachlan Morton's DMs, I got them to re-release Thereabouts 3 Columbia. I am an awesome social media uh, influencer. Except, I will call out the bullshit. It coincided with the release of Rafa Films Outskirts 3, 
Shadow of the East. To say that I was all kinds of hyped up on semi-assisted bikepacking, cycling hipsters and stupid hair would be an understatement. Our trip to the Alps would include a semi-assisted bikepacking leg. I had the stupid hair, all I needed was to become a cycling hipster. Cue me buying a handlebar bag, aka joining handlebar bag club. Handlebar bag club is blood in and blood out. I rode with my housemate Paul Forrestal for the first time ever. We had lived together for nine months at that point. I was doing 2x20s and he was just on a rest bin. I outsprinted him on the second interval. Maybe I should have the A1 license, Paul. I met Eugene Dillon for a spin on a Saturday. We rode up to the Armory Cafe. There we met Martin O'Donoghue and his band of the Wicklow 100 first-timers. Martin told me that they were going to the blue light for points. I presumed he was buying with the remainder of the leisure budget. Some of the girls in the group had sore throats from belting out all of their hits at the Spice Girls concert the previous days. The next day, I rode my inaugural McBurn. I hoped to clock up 200 kilometers by riding the McBurn 160 and cycling in and out. I blew up after 137 kilometers. There is still radioactive glass on Glen McNass waterfall from the mushroom cloud I had that day. Barry Mooney and I used our cyclos cross skills to take on the gravel descent at Glen Cree. My contact point with the saddle was a bit raw from the McBurn. I had loads of food and clothing layers in my pocket. I resolved to buy a handlebar bag to alleviate what Johnny Cash would deem a ring of fire. I read reviews on handlebar bags, especially the latest Rafa handlebar bag. It was not positive. I went deep into hashtag handlebar bag on Instagram and I discovered the Spanish brand Cordel. They had a product called the Durum, essentially drum. It looked awesome and it lets you customize parts of the bag. So I ordered it. The Orwell Summer Weekend Away, aka TCAS, was good crack, despite the crosswinds. Ashley Neal surprised me with a birthday cake on the Sunday night. I may or may not have turned 30 this year. I made it to the Monday spin for the first year ever. I'm getting wise in my advancing years. Sunday, June 9th. I introduced the Orwell Sunday Mountains group to my handlebar bag. The Cordel Durum by Luke GJ was born. It was in tropical camo and had orange detailing. The May-June weather was quite bad, so I was still in leg warmers and a gilet. On that spin, I ripped minutes out of my PBs on the climbs. When I was going hard, I had to unzip the, unzip the gilet. Stupid hair, flappy clothing, and looking like a cycling hipster. 
Boom, I was Ghost Morton in Thereabout 1 and Lachlan Morton in Outskirt 3. Barry Green remarked, You look super pro. I didn't need to answer. The handlebar bag, flappy gilet, spoke volumes. This was the same day as a Wicklow 200. When I got home, sportif rider and soon-to-be ex-housemate Paul Forrestal tried and failed to take me down a peg by telling me, me, that Freddie Stevens was the most pro-looking rider he had ever seen. Freddie Schmitty, I believe was my belligerent response. At the 12 Peaks Anne-Marie Marmot edition, future triathlete Gary Connolly just, he just couldn't deal with the presence of the handlebar bag. I did five of the 12 peaks, as it was a rest week. I had extra tubes in my handlebar bag for Ashleen, and at the foot of the Shea Elliott, we seen Eugene Dillon. He's coming the opposite way. Even after having a chance to ponder for seven peaks, Gar still could not grasp the handlebar bag. During the spin, I took a fantastic photo of Ashleen herding sheep. I had to go all the way to rural Clare, Clare to gain handlebar bag acceptance. I woke up 40 minutes late for the Tour de Bern. I had visions of riding the 130 kilometers solo, so I put on my Rule 28 Aero socks. On that spin, I passed tons of people with handlebar bags. Mine was the most stylish though. I felt at home with these kindred spirits, although most of them were jealous that I was doing twice their speed into a headwind with my rock solid core strength baby. A stag in Prague took place. It was quite good to decompress. My training plan for that weekend consisted of one easy bike ride. I accomplished this by using the beer bike. The beer bike is quite scary. There's no suspension on it. So turning and cobbled roads were not for a man who had an expensive cycling trip coming up. I should have trained I should have trained for the beer bike by offering to help my dad on the farm driving the Massey 135. The official 12 Peaks Etap Edition took place the following week. Three weeks since the previous 12 Peaks, duathlete Gary Connolly still could not deal with the handlebar bag. I also had Dara Connolly, the brother, on my case. Neil, Neil Kieran and Patrick Corbally also chimed in. My excellent peripheral vision picked out their envious glances as I unzipped the top, unfurled a pack of dates, and chowed down. Cash, totally casual. On top of Brown Mountain, we met the mercurial Eugene Dillon. He had the news of his engagement to Katie to share. I cracked on Turlock Hill. Had some spuds in Lara and cracked 
again on Slave Man. The crack that happened on Slave Man was described in my post 12 Pigs interview as a Humpty Dumpty mushroom cloud crack. A normal man would not have been able to continue. I had to finish to keep my self respect. I had to cut out, I had cut out the Wicklow 200, trim the McBurn, and I had indulged in Prague. I pushed on through sheer force of will. I stupidly left my gels in my car and hashtag potato power had worn off. On Brown Mountain, Dara was getting in a few more <clears throat> handlebar bag related digs. He stopped abruptly when Paul O'Donoghue appeared on the horizon. Pod was preparing for Paris, Brest Paris in his full touring setup. Surprisingly though, Dara did not get pink eye from all the brown nosing he did to Paul. I rode Slave Man and Shea Elliott solo. It was misty at the top and yet again I took the best photo of Ashleen as she crested. We rode the descent into Lara together and I outsprinted her on the kick up to Clodas as I could be seen to be beaten by a girl. I finished my training with a 160 kilometer ride from my home house on the side of a hill with a phone mast. Yes, it was quite hard to find a saddle to accommodate my third testicle. And I went all the way to Uthrard. I had planned to visit a seasonally opened cafe with my mates. It was a super warm day. And I rode back to my village and my dogs. I finally got to see the cliffs of Moher from across Galway Bay. Chapter 3 The Broken Microwave That Sent Me Back in Time Dear Reader, before we get to France, let's talk about what happened behind the scenes and off the bike. I continued to work with Aidan Hammond for the coaching plan. I also signed up to Zwift's Le Tap Training Club, not for the workouts, but for the reading material. I missed a block of VO2 Max training designed around the club league races while I was catching up in work. I short-changed myself there. Looking back, with massive loads of high insight on the training block, I think I should have understood or sought clarification about when Aiden said, for the weekend workouts, eat and drink plenty on the bike. I should have interpreted this as train your stomach by plowing food into yourself on the bike. For the tour, Mitchelton Scott, aka Orca Greenhouse, they had trained Adam Yates to process 110 grams of carbs per hour. I should have been focusing on this metric as well, just to keep my performance strong at the end of rides. The heat wave that enveloped France for the tour was a freak, but it was always going to be hot. I should have been acclimatizing to the heat by riding three times a week, 30 minutes on the trainer without a fan, 
all the heat adaption and climatization stuff only started to be published on GCN, the Trainer Road podcast, and Zwift Power Up podcast in early July. By that time, it was too late for me. The test event for the Tokyo Olympics also took place. Um, I wasn't involved. There are going to be some sports scientists who are going to get a great reputation from these upcoming Olympics for their heat adaption work. I won't be watching the Olympics though because I'm not a bitch for sports washing. It's going to be hosted in the world's most xenophobic country and the mutants, the mutants that China are going to produce from their human experimental laboratories. It's going to be total bullshit. And I didn't give two defecations about Brazil sports washing. And I won't be giving a flying intercourse about Qatar's bloody World Cup. The next training block from Aiden was a threshold block. Somehow, I unlocked a way to control my core. Where I could breathe with my tum-tums while my spine was taut. I labelled this my rock solid core. It drew some banter on Strava with girls, I mean like, okay, just one nosy girl, wanting to see it in action on a ride of the bicycle variety. The threshold interval block was focused on 10 minute efforts. In every session, I got higher power numbers and even more intervals were added. On the 2x20s, I chopped almost a minute of my personal best on Krua and Stock and Lane. Aiden Hammond's training plan had me in super shape ahead of the Alps. This was massive for my self-esteem because some things started to unravel for me. I was listening to like way too much Jordan B. Peterson. He's talking about taking on responsibility to give my life a purpose. I volunteered to organize the bike transport for the trip. I won't delve into what happened too much, but one company tried to altar boy parish priest me twice. My savior on this occasion was fellow ginger Mark Zuckerberg. A Facebook advert for a rival company led me to a cheaper alternative. I felt like a sack of shit switching companies. But I was pissed off and it was good for the group. It was like being the Rick Grimes of bike transport. And I had to keep my group safe. Following the guilt of switching companies, I had the added cognitive load of people asking me questions. Questions I had already documented. After some time, I just, got, I just responded to them with a link and a FAQ off. FAQ off. The bike transfer saga took another turn when fellow stupid hair person, Boris Johnson, and the Brexiteers implemented customs on the British land bridge. For us, this meant that we had to book our suitcases on our airplanes. This was sad, as bringmybike.ie were set to bring our cases, which would have met it a fantastic deal. 
Three weeks before the attack, the microwave in the office broke. I kicked up a stink with the facility staff. Oh, they tried to ignore me. It boiled down to the fact that facilities didn't want to clean the microwave and the catering staff didn't want to either. We have a restaurant in the office, two actually, but they serve garbage food and teeth breaking broccoli. I had to essentially bully two grown men to get my microwave. The solution we came to was for them to put a sign over the microwave. This is a self-service microwave. My company pretty much exclusively hire human garbage to the point where all the cups are brown stains because people just won't rinse the coffee out. Fucking rinse the fucking thing, boys. And there are also signs in the bathrooms. Don't leave cups in the bathroom, reads the sign. So the microwave was at risk of becoming an absolute shithole. Luckily enough, there's only like five of us who use it. But I didn't just get one microwave. Oh, I over-delivered. I got two. They're now called lucrowaves. The downside, they took three weeks to arrive. During the three weeks of hot trash restaurant food, I packed on three kilograms of body fat. Rapidly undoing my five months of home cooking. This was massively depressing. As cycling is a pretty basic sport. The power you can produce divided by your body weight. The watts per kilo radio. It like really upset me to see the beginnings of a four pack and the tops of my pecs vanish. Lying in bed at night thinking this cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. Get me an iceberg. I was a walrus. I felt like I wasted the last five months of cooking. The only upside was that I didn't get sick. I did have a mini, a mini panic attack when I thought I was getting sick on the week I was due to go to France. I break out in acne spots when I get ill. I was just back from Prague and the hot weekend in Ireland led me to use sunscreen and after sun, which blocked my pores. I went to Sinead Kennedy for a sports massage. Sports massages can leave you feeling a bit drained. This combined with the acne I was getting from the sunscreen had me in a tizzy. I had to repeat into the mirror. I am not sick. I cannot be sick. I am just fat. I had a slight tightness in my neck before the massage. Sinead loosened up my neck and applied some tape to my traps. This was to keep the muscles stretched. Mad scientist Sinead had experimented with a kinesio tape on herself for her trip to the Dolomites. She benefited from it and my neck didn't bother me at all on the trip. The tape really helped with the travel and dragging bags. My barber was quite stressed cutting around Sinead's kinesio tape.
Chapter 4 Traumatic Travel Part 1 Now, dear listener, let's get to France. Oh, wait! There's an 80 minute delay on our flight. Some other pilot parked their plane in our gate and just left. I copped some extra stick from my holiday makers for my kinesthesiology tape, also known as bonus banter. Nama boy Johnny Ronan was on our flight. He was shorter than me, a lot shorter. He got the second best tier of seats in the plane because he didn't need the leg room. I used the downtime to configure my new Garmin Edge A30 and the routes for it for the coming weeks. Uh, when we arrived in Geneva, we were greeted by Phil from Sportive Brakes, our tour company. The bus was super slow. I'm pretty sure it went the wrong way, according to Google Maps. But we got to see real, like actual real Swiss people chilling out on Lake Geneva. They needed some downtime from like, clock making, chocolateering. Phil met us again in our base town of Moutier. He gave us an info speech. Most of it was not needed because it had been well documented in the emails. He seemed like a pretty chilled out guy, did Phil. Moutier was a small town. There was not much accommodation in it. and Booking large groups into hotels could be tricky. This hotel was an unmitigated disaster. The two-star Welcome Hotel in Moutier. Honestly, they must have paid for the five-star reviews on Google Maps. We were all supposed to be carb-loading. My vegetarian option was a large salad. No carbohydrates to be seen. Wine was the only way to acquire calories. France was in the midst of a heat wave. It was 17 degrees at night. The rooms did not have aircon. They didn't even have a ceiling fan. And the bathroom floor was a grotty lino, so I couldn't sleep on the cool tiles. My room was on the road side of the hotel. There was lots of Egypts driving outside, blowing their horns. Oh yeah, and the Bride Bain train station was right outside. Train start, 5am. Breakfast was also a carb-free zone. Eggs and croissants are apparently sports nutrition. Over the course of the trip, Patter would frequently say to me, What did you expect? You can't be vegetarian in France. I couldn't answer him at the time, due to be so pissed off. But I'll answer it now. What do I expect? I expect a world where the Amazon rainforest is not deliberately set on fire to be replaced by grass for grazing cattle or growing soybeans for feeding factory farmed cattle or big oil to prospect on. I expect a world where healthy eating options are not financially prohibitive to the poorest in society. I expect a world where foods that cause long-term inflammation 
are exposed for the diseases that they bring. How many of you cyclists have heard of Blue Zones before Anthony Walsh talked about in his cutting edge research that you have to sign up to his mailing list to hear all about? I expect a world where Blue Zones are all over the earth. Where the horrors of factory farming are in the past. Where farmers don't have to go into debt to buy Monsanto or Bayer GMO seeds. Where tourist towns aren't abandoned because of the pollution that's been caused by dumping of feces from factory farms. Mostly though, I expect a world that is not a slow motion suicide. The way to actualize my expectations, to use the only voting power that I actually have, my spending habits. Every euro that you spend is a vote for what you believe in. Unfortunately, on this trip, I could not hashtag be the proof that plants work, the heat and lack of carbs, lack of sleep would see to that. Chapter 5 Race Packs and Cortisol My alarm went off at 20 past 7. In truth, I was already awake. I had not slept much that night. Possibly 3 hours? Beeping cars, trains and hot temperatures put pay to my efforts. Today was simple. We would start cycling at 9 o'clock in the morning cycle 30 kilometers to Albertville to pick up our race packs, explore the race village. And the best thing was that our bikes were already set up and waiting for us. Our base town, Moutier, was at the foot of the final climb, Val Therens, the highest ski resort in Europe at 2300 meters above sea level. Albertville, which hosted the 1992 Winter Olympics, was a start town for the tour for the Le Tapte tour. We got a speech from our guide, Taylor Gunman. He said that the route was on a bike path. Taylor had recently retired from pro cycling at the tender age of twenty seven. He finished his final season with Madison Genesis a few months before the end of twenty eighteen. His Palmaris include a win at the New Zealand Individual Time Trial National Championships, which was in 2014, and a win at the Oceania, Oceania Continental Championship Road Race in 2015. He took some very impressive scalps that day. Paddy Bevan, Cam Worth, Heppy and Jai Hindley. Most importantly for Taylor though, he is a man of the Ross. He scored a 6th on the opening stage of the 2016 edition. Like, did I mention that I like cycle with people with pro cycling stats profiles? Should probably have mentioned that. Straight out of Moutier, we were on a little ramp. The descent, one lad had got a puncture there. So we all pulled into an alcove to wait. It had an awesome view. So I whipped out the phone to take a photo. And whilst framing the shot, I was about to press take. A guy in blue rode in front of me. 
brick. More on this knobhead later, mate. Doc and I had great banter on the way over to Albertville. We, we were chilling out down the back of the group. There was a guy in like a Maltini jersey riding a first generation specialized venge with 60mm deep Chinese clinchers. Oh boy, that was such a mismatch. At the entrance to the village, I met Didi the Devil. Gar and Niall also fanboyed out on the mascot. We got our photos taken. It was good times. The race village had secured bike parking, similar to Liège-Baston-Liège. The content of the race village was massive compared to the five stalls that were in Liège. There were countless, countless stalls selling everything. Internet bike brands like Canyon and Rafa were offering sizing. The Alpacen shampoo stand was offering dry shampooing. Their boots attendants were women in skin suits. This was so they could obviously shampoo your hair 40 seconds faster. After the race village, we carved up on OTE bars at the sportive brake setup. They were like very nice. I pocketed a few because it had been almost 20 hours since I last ate a carb. We put our race packs into our van and that brought them to the hotel. On the ride back to Moutier, I got talking to a fellow classics man. He had done Roubaix and Flanders a few times. We swapped stories about Liège and his adventures. We pushed to the front of the group to avoid riding in the wind as there were some splits appearing in front of us. I got to third wheel um, with some lads who were trying to talk to Taylor. My friend in the blue, he was there, riding three abreast on the road. Sometime later, as we approached a tight left turn, we were riding on the right side of the road. He was on the right side of the bunch, and I was on the left. He was, ro- he was one row ahead of me. I knew exactly what he was going to do. Knobs like him always do it. So I gave him as much leeway as possible. Boom. He cuts the corner from the far side of the road. Prick. He tries to take us all out on the eve of an expensive season goal. <sighs> Prick. A moment later, Niall Kieran pulls up beside me. Watch out for that lad in the blue. Niall cautioned. Yes, Niall, I know. He literally just tried to take me out. I retorted (laughs) as a slight adrenaline spike dumped. On the final ramps for the run to home, I decided to blow out any cobwebs. There were some digs put in by Barry Green and Ian Devlin. Gar and Niall tried to follow. I was feeling like hot shit, baby. Let's go. I bridged up and rode past all of them except Barry. Good old Barry. They were all put into line with my out of the saddle riding in the big ring up the climb. We were in the homeland of V sur la Plaque. 
after all. Gar accused me of burning matches. On the next climb, I was dancing up it until I had to slow to a crawl. Some sweat and sunscreen had gotten into my eye. I could not wipe it out and I could not stop because I was near the front of the bunch. I descended into Moutier one-eyed with no depth perception. Luckily enough, I'm a pretty good bike handler. Gar was getting some like last post-ride handlebar bag digs in. So I asked Taylor what his opinion on the subject was. Taylor, good man he is, rocks a handlebar bag on long rides to store rain jacket and extra food. In his latest handlebar bag adventure, was on July 14th. A long ride over the La Cesse de Montvernier and, and the Alpe d'Huez. He forgot that it was a French holiday and all the cafes were closed. So he battled the bonk after exhausting all his supplies. Would he have met at home without his handlebar bag? I think not. My kinesthesio tape had... My kinesthesio tape uh, had to be removed. It did its job. It could not survive a few showers and the bucket load of sweat I produced on that ride. I had to then shave the neck hair that the barber couldn't cut. With the race packs collected, I was looking forward to relaxing for the rest of the day. The universe, though, had other plans. The cognitive load and performance crippling cortisol was about to enter my life. Getting lunch was drama filled. Everywhere was closing for their French siesta. We ended up somewhere that served skinny crepes. I asked for a bowl of frites with my, for myself. But the dude brought out a bowl of frites for the whole table. How hard is it to find a carb in this town? We then had more drama. Dara's wheel was incorrect. It got mixed up with another group's wheel. Helen and Peter Grealish's wheels had also needed to do the switcheroo. The main part of the panic for Dara was that his wheel and his bike was an aluminium braking surface and he had carbon braking pads. As I was a contact for the bike transfer company, I was involved in the recovery of the wheel. We eventually got in contact from Michael from Bring My Bike. Michael had been out riding the attack route. Dara got sorted, but it was stressful. Our next task was to find a supermarket. I wanted to get apple juice. I had brought overnight's oats and a lunchbox. The positioning of the supermarket on Google Maps was at the back of the store, so it looked like it was on a very different street. I provided Anne with a laptop to fix her Garmin. Uh, the Garmin wouldn't start because there was not enough space on it. She deleted almost three years of activity files. The second last drama of the day was dinner at the hotel. My expectation was a load of carbs and early to bed. The waitress said, and for the vegetarian, we have fish. 
I rolled my eyes and put my head in my hands. Dara was also experiencing hashtag dinner drama. He doesn't eat chicken and explicitly noted this on his dietary requirements. But the hotel was serving chicken pasta regardless. We then asked them to make some sort of pasta sauce, but the chef the chef did not have tomatoes. Dara and I walked out. We ended up in a restaurant on the square. I had a great conversation with Dara about his career and the prospects of IT contractors. My main concern about IT contracting was a rumour that you may not be able to get a mortgage. It was good to actually talk to someone who had been there, done that, and was currently wearing a day rate and property ladder t-shirt. This conversation was the eye of the hurricane. The English lads beside us told us to avoid the risotto. When we got our menus, the only vegetarian option was the risotto. I ordered it anyway. The last risotto that I ordered kept me going for 11 hours. That was in Prague. The only printable thing that happened on that night was that I worked my way down a cocktail menu. A very long cocktail menu. Five minutes later, the waiter returns. We are out of risotto. All I wanted was a load of carbs. It was now impossible to get a fucking carb in this fucking town. I ordered something to replace it. When the food arrived, the state of it, I knew I would not have the glycogen stores to be able to complete the attack. Unless I could summon the force of will to push past a certain bog. It was over, even before it began. It was now just a case of putting a brave face on it. I struggled to sleep again at night. I had no nerves about the attack. It was just the same crap as the night before. Heat, horns, trains. There were also two late night reveling French lads who decided to have a heart to heart outside my window. I wanted to sleep, but I also wanted Francois to reassure Pierre that Antoinette was a bitch and that she didn't deserve him. Chapter 6 The Inability to Dance Like Lance The 5am train didn't have a chance to wake me as I we were already eating breakfast at that stage. The others were fighting over croissant crumbs. I was eating my overnight oats. They tasted mank because they were not cold. I felt like hot garbage this morning. Our bus was the last to leave and my bike was the last to appear. We were at the Hotel Ibis about one kilometer from the start line. I needed to use the bathroom 
but I was the 87th person to enter the Hotel Ibis, and there was only one bathroom. I got fed up of the queue not moving, so I left to go to the start line. I queued up, and after a few minutes, a person came out of the portaloo and said, all the toilet paper was gone. I panicked. I rode back to the Hotel Ibis. The other Orwell people called me to take a team photo. With sweat running down my brow, I refused to participate. Not gonna happen, boys. The queue was now even longer. I asked Phil if he had anything I could use. He gave me lots of blue rolls. I rode off into the sunrise and I got back into the bathroom queue. By the time I got to the front of the queue, my sphincter was under extreme pressure. I got sorted and my chamois didn't have any additional colors. I was in wave nine. So my num my number plate started with a nine. I entered the start pen with the number nine flag. After standing there for a while, I started to look at the others. I noticed that the guy in front of me had a pl number plate in the 11,000 range. Due to the rules, this guy was an instant disqualification for jumping his start wave. Then I noticed an another 11,000 and a third. Was everybody here just cheating? Like on Zwift? Nope, I was in the wrong wave. I left the wave and moved up to the correct one. Gar Conley, Mark Mulcahy, Hugh Butler and Peter Grealish were already there waiting. The waves more or less work in reverse order, so the faster riders were in wave 14 and the slowest riders were in wave 6. The show ponies, Shane Phelan and Ian Devlin, were in waves 3 and 4 respectively. The rest of the crew, crew were as follows. Wave 8 had Amory Lochre, Barry Mooney, Ashley Neal, Mary Mernan, Dave Mernan, Porrick Morrissey, Donald O'Connor and Donald Duffy. Wave 11 had Patter Corbally. Wave 12, Barry Green, Sean Kelly and Colin Caesar. Wave 13 had Dara Boyd, Brian Colfer and Niall Kieran, Anne Horn and Helen Horn. And wave 14 had Colin Cronin. Wave 0 contained riders who were going to race it. Among the starters were Irish passport holders Cameron Jeffers and Imogen Cotter. Skoda Cycling and We Love Cycling magazine brought them out for, I guess, being some sort of social media influencers. My uh, 100 euro in Huel referral vouchers didn't make the grade there. Cam, he's a pretty decent YouTuber. Although his channel doesn't have enough humor for my liking. Instagrammer Imogen was caught in a bike industry marketing hostage Stockholm Syndrome situation. A week before the attack, she put out a post about her new 1300 euro paperweight.
Of course, she got the Shimano power meter for free. I scrolled the 122 comments, 5,500 likes, and out of 55,000 followers, no one mentioned the real reason for the promotion. Two weeks earlier, Shane Miller, GP Lama, published a long-term study on the Shimano crank design. His and power meter patent holder Keith Wakeham's determination. No spider-based power meter could be accurate on that crank design. Every shop had stock of these units that only idiots would buy. So they had to micro-influence their stock out. The start area was really cool. They had tour winner portraits along the wall and the Olympic flame was burning. It was 20 kilometers to the foot of the first categorized climb. But that was 20 kilometers of uphill drag. I struggled to keep up with Mark, Peter and Garrett on the first ramp. I let them go on the second ramp and chilled out with Hugh. We had pretty much the same watts per kilo at threshold. So our zone 2 and zone 3 powers were quite close. On the third ramp we were now getting passed by wave 10 flyers. They started 10 minutes behind us. This poor performance was really hard to reconcile as I was going like a rocket ship the day before. I thought I dropped Hugh on a descent because I'm class, but I think he actually dropped me. Either way, it was the last time that we seen each other all day. On this descent, I passed a rider from wave 6, an Asian woman in women's Trek Gefredo gear. She was descending like a granny. I jumped in with a number of groups and either got shelled or someone else dropped the wheel. Never me, I never dropped the wheel. But on that flat run to the first categorized climb, we were in one lined out group. No one was under pressure. This was not the Ross. I seen a guy drop the wheel in front of me. This was about 10 riders ahead. I, why sportive riders just sit up and never, it'll never fail to amaze me. Everyone came around him. He tried to move back into the pace line on top of me. I gave him a, no, 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 you don't. He looked somewhere else and then clipped the wheel in front of him. He went down in front of me. I circumnavigated this mess. I didn't even bother looking back. Primarily because there were shit tons of riders behind me. And looking back is how secondary crashes happen. A Canyon Air Road and a 90 euro Rafa jersey both hit the ground. When I seen this guy in the Latap Rafa jersey, I knew he was an accident waiting to happen. Golden rule, stay away from people in event jerseys and protein kit. The riders that require the widest berth are usually the ones in Peter Sagan related kit. The riders who should never have been berthed are in Bahrain kit. I met the three lads at the food stop. I recounted the tale to them. I noticed that I was actually very shaken by the affair now that I had 
300 meters to mentally process it. I replenished some supplies and set about writing up the Cormier de Rosend. This was a 20 kilometer 6% slog. The 6% belies its true steepness. There were lots of false flats and the climb could logically be split into three parts. A forest, a flat bit around a lake and a rockscape at the top. It was very stressful. As I was going like a bag of spanners, I rode on the right hand side of the road, aka the slow lane. If the slow lane got too slow, then I had to find a space to move out. I had to be vigilant for riders jumping out of the saddle and others torquing their bikes like Fabio Aru. It was rather claustrophobic. I had only one reference point for a situation like this. At the Reservoir Dog Sport Thief in 2018, I got caught behind a very dodgy rider on Butter Mountain. It was chock-a-block, I could not pass this guy out. I remember it so vividly as the guy was at least 6 foot tall and was riding 165mm cranks. He had no out-of-the-saddle suplex. He also wasn't wearing socks. On the slopes in the forest section, I was passed by Patter, Barry, Sean and Colin. I passed Porrick at the lake where we both took photos. Once we were on the rockscape at the top, I had to be extra careful. The riders from waves 6 and 7 that I was catching had been climbing for almost 2 hours. And there were also riders from wave 14 that were ripping by us. Some of the slower riders were veering across the road, causing massive compressions. I completed the climb in 2 hours, 0 minutes and 49 seconds. I had 40 minutes to spare ahead of the broom wagon. Over the top, the food stop was a complete zoo. It was wedged. I just wanted water. I added SIS beta fuel to my bottles. I kept the sachets in my handlebar bag from stopping them getting moist. I took on some extra calories before the descent so that it would be closer to glycogen after the descent. Just before departing, I seen Anne Horan in the throng of people. Just like Billy Zane in the Titanic, I left her to fend for herself. The descent of the Cormier de Rosland was possibly more stressful than the climb. There were riders just dragging their brakes downhill, even on the long straight sections. They were also riding in the middle of the road. As much as a daredevil as I am, there were other riders going much faster than I. So I had to be super wary about moving into the fast lane to avoid being hit by a missile. My Garmin had the route loaded and I was displaying the map screen. This way I could see all the upcoming turns, particularly the multitude of hairpins. I seen lots of riders with punctures on the descent. Their tires had likely been pumped up too hard and the heat generated by their excessive braking was popping the tube. Basics physics really. Hot air expands. I even seen a moto rider 
helping a cyclist out of the trees. I had only one problem on the descent. The bones in my wrists were aching. 20 kilometers of descending and heartbreaking was draining. I caught up to Doc on the descent. He was feeling very ill and was going slow to avoid puking. Somehow, Helen caught me at the very bottom of the descent. I weigh almost 15 kilos more than her, so I should have been like a lead sled. She asked me for some painkillers as she had a poor sore paw. Then she dropped me on a drag two minutes later. In the valley, it was now unbearably hot. 35 degrees. The 13 kilometer drag to the start of the next climb, the Monte de Longfoy, was torture. I passed some, some time talking to an Irish lad in an aqua blue Connor John National Champions jersey. I ensured not to get too close to him. I let him go when I noticed a water fountain. I filled up water and carried on. There was also a woman up the road in the Trek Travel Tour Company. I gave her my trash that I'd been stuffing into my handlebar bag. Hashtag leave no trace. We had a bit of banter. She was talking to Taylor in the morning. She was also pumping out don't stop believing over her PA system. When I told her I didn't particularly care for the song, she changed it to pour some sugar on it. It was nice to be under her gazebo for a few minutes. I ensured to drop the sporty breaks into our conversation, referencing Taylor, for when I tried to blag some water from her. But she, she saw through my plot. The water was only for her people. I felt like a stripper though, in the way that I tried to use social pretext to extract resources. I was flying through the bottles. There was a village with a few fountains and I joined the queue for the first fountain. In the queue was Alana Jaeger, the Instagrammer clipped in and free. She wasn't brought here by a brand so I guess she was clipped in and paid the entry fee. I don't know where her like, social media strategy is, as she only shows off Canyon and Rafa. Those brands don't need people to shill for them, because they have good products. After this fountain, there were about five more fountains in the village, and there was one house that had a window open, and they were filling bottles from their sink. The Lone Foy was essentially the Wicklow Gap, seven kilometers at seven percent. The lower slopes were fine, but every kilometre marker had the next kilometre's gradient. Two kilometres at 9% cracked me. I had to pull over onto a hairpin with some shelter from the sun. There were so many bodies in this shaded section. I rested with these poor souls. I knew there was only one Orwell person that was left to pass me. Anne Horn came round the hairpin looking cool, calm and collected. I 
cheered her on fairly loudly. Go on, go on, Anne, up. She pretended not to notice. I felt like a douche. Kind of enraged me. So I grabbed my bike with the full intent to chase her down and tell her I withdraw my moral support. I was battling heat stroke, lack of sleep, and I was not thinking straight. I snapped back to my senses when I seen a fellow countryman in a bad condition. He was wearing a Trek Segafredo Ryan Mullen National Champs kit. I offered him a gel and sunscreen. Anything to get this soldier back on his feet. I had gone from Ike Turner to Florence Nightingale in the space of three seconds. When I pulled into that hairpin, it was then that I started to decide on give up on finishing the attack. I just wanted to enjoy the remaining 30 kilometers to Moutier to my hotel. I got over the top of the lone foy. I had 30 minutes to spare over the broom wagon. Doc was resting behind a gate. He must have passed me during my meltdown on the 9% kilometers. He said that there was a false flat and then the descent. I got to know I got a second wind for this false flat. Perhaps it was that the steep gradients were finished. The descent of the lone foy was unbelievably scary. We were all so tired. We were all so tired because I had been riding for six hours at that point. They were lads just railing the hairpins. The bones in my wrists were aching again. At the bottom, I seen a very populated ditch. It was fully in the shade. I stopped my bike and climbed into the ditch. This is where I lost the attack. This is where I resigned. There were others here in very bad shape. I used the time to eat a Velo Forte bar. It was a Chicolico flavor. It contained dates and dark chocolate. It was intended to be my pick-me-up for when I was struggling. There was a trio of English lads in the Ditch of Doom. One of them was dying of cramps. The other corpses just ignored the commotion. Is this what it was like in the world wars? Just staring off into the distance as your comrades wailed about their previously functioning legs. Something else started to brew. (laughs) My sitting position, squatting, prompted my digestive system to start. I needed a porterloo. Badly. My 13 minute sojourn was interrupted by Doc coming up. I jumped back on and we rode together for a few minutes. As I was now certain to pull out, as I had just 17 minutes ahead of the broom wagon, I stopped to help a cyclist who was trying to pump up his wheel. He did not want help. The best part of the whole day was riding down the closed motorway into Moutier. They built a new motorway near my home house and the Tume Lions Club 
ran a sportif on it before it opened to cars. That day was too windy to ride a bike, so I missed my chance to ride on a motorway. Finally, I got to fulfill an ambition by riding on this motorway. I made the most of the opportunity. I was swerving and slaloming the whole way down. The big crowds of riders were gone, so it was safe to fret out. There were massive crowds of supporters in Moutier. There were strings of supporters all day, but this was an audience. And I gave the kids a show by waving like the queen. Ah, yes, one is delighted to meet you all. I used to own ye Frenchies. The final food stop in Moutier. The queues for the Portaloos were too long. It was all over. I could poo- I could not poop and beat the broom wagon. The lower slopes of Val Thorens were the hardest and I could not ride them with 1.5 kilos of dates, veloforte bars, electrolytes and naked bars inside of me. Sportive Brakes had their own food stop just around the corner. I pulled in. Dave Hendren was there looking hopeful. I gave him the shake of the head. I was out, climbing off. Dave's previous interaction with an Orwell cyclist was to stuff Doc's pockets of gels and baguettes and push him on. Dave knew what lay ahead of us. He had ridden Val Therens that morning. We cycled back one kilometre to the hotel together. Hugh Butler's bike was in the lobby. He had pulled out in Moutier. He had an hour to spare over the broom wagon at that point. He decided not to do the final 30 kilometre climb up to Val Therens, as we had a long week ahead of us. He put his bike in, we put our bikes into lockup. I went to my room and I murdered the toilet. The shower was still a pain in the ass as I needed to hold the head, the shower head, because there was no hook. In my emotional and fatigued state, slipping and snapping my neck were a real possibility. I dried myself off and just lay on the bed with a towel over my face. This defeat was hard to take. I thought about what my mother would say. Luckily, my brothers were on opposite sides of the planet. I knew there would be happy faces this evening. Joy and reveling in the moment. I would be there. Miserable. All the sacrifices I had made. How the microwave screwed me over. How terrible the hotel was. And this hotel was like a prison now. There were two more sleepless, carbless nights ahead of us. Starbucks and the local Chinese had nearly gone out of business during my healthy eating months. I removed the towel from my face, threw it on the floor, somehow hoping that I had neuro-linguistically programmed myself to put this failure behind me. That didn't happen. 
It took almost two weeks for me to not get a lump in my throat. I'm talking about how I couldn't finish the ATSAP. I got a pizza at the end of the street. Two lads at the next table sat down. They had their ATSAP finishers medals around the neck. A family came in next. The father wasn't there. They had a gorgeous dog. The dog just flopped on the floor. After I finished my pizza, I rubbed that dog. And I rubbed that dog good. I exchanged a few words with the daughter, who was like 20-something. I was now 30. <laughs> As I was leaving, Dave Hendren and Porrick Morrissey appeared. We got a beer. They don't chill beers in France, so it tasted like muck. Porrick recounted his ATAP experience. He got caught by the broom wagon on the climb out of Moutier, sometime just before 5pm. He heard a crash between a rider descending and a rider climbing on the only road in and out of Val Thorens. Doc was sending us WhatsApp messages. He made the 5pm cutoff by two minutes. He now had until 7pm to get to the ski resort. The others were also sending selfies with their medals. Peter Grealish was the first finisher back. He recounted the states of the riders that he saw as he descended. Long story short, they were humans in various stages of decomposition. I stood sentinel outside the lockup and took the guys' bikes and heard a quick debrief. The family from the pizzeria walked outside. The father had finished the attack. I waved at the dog, but the daughter waved back. Awkward. Very awkward. The beers were had, and the Mernans were the last ones home. Doc elected to stay on top of Val Therens and wait for Phil from Sportive Breaks to collect him. He was too exhausted to trust himself on the descent. I got my laptop so Ian could upload his ride. Here we compared each other's times. Sean Kelly had smashed it. He did a 7 hours 11 minutes 42 seconds. His moving time indicated that he had only stopped for 6 minutes. Ian Devlin had the fastest Orwell time on the Rosslend. 1 hour 25 minutes 53 seconds. Peter Grealish got the fastest Orwell time on Valtherens. 2 hours 38 minutes 48 seconds. Sean Kelly was about 4 minutes down on both of these segments. Anne-Marie Lockray gave me a hug for not finishing the attack. It meant a lot. She had been in a similar situation 54 weeks previously. It almost made me tear up. <laughs> Damn this being human and experiencing emotions thing. My French cuisine dinner consisted of long grain rice and a small ladle of some sort of sauce. Luckily I had that pizza. We moved to a pub and a loud rapture erupted when Doc walked in. 
Part 2, detailing the raid of the Alps, will be coming soon. Could my redemption arc be completed? That's it. We've done it. Luigi Legion, dismissed. Enjoy your shorty of space cowboys. <laughs>